And I think for me, there's always been this tension with purpose that for many sounds like quite a goal-focused thing, which is what you're saying. Whereas for me, purpose has always been living into what I love and then the goals kind of emerge. So I have kind of sometimes sort of berate myself, oh, but I should have been doing, and I don't have these goals of I want to be this or want to do that, but I do what I love. And then these amazing things come to me. So it's so important to kind of have it that way around because I feel like we haven't been taught that way around. We've been kind of taught, you must have a goal and reach for that goal. But actually, if you're doing what you love, those things emerge. Welcome to The Enrichment Project, Path to Purpose, recorded by the mad talent at Solid Gold Podcast. It is a series of unfiltered and insightful conversations with some of the most remarkable purpose-driven human beings who have all achieved, created, inspired, triumphed or challenged. And we have a great deal to learn from them. It is a quest to uncover and articulate the steps along the way to help you on your own journey of purpose. I am your host, Richard Wright, and I am delighted to have you with me Thank you for the gift of your time. Let's dive straight in. Welcome to another show. And today I'm absolutely delighted to have a very special guest in the studio with me. Uh, Gina is my cousin and she's definitely from the smarter part of the family. So Gina, welcome to the show. Thanks, Richard. It's really great to be here. I don't remember us ever, so we share a birthday, right? We're 29th of July, put that in your calendar, you can wish both of us. And Gina is, you can see, she's a little bit younger than I am. I'm looking old and tired, but um, I don't think we've ever had a live or even a video chat on this, anything like this, Gina? No, no, we've only had in-person ones. You know the old days when we used to chat in person? When we actually used to do that, yes. Um, so Gina, really, really awesome to have you here. And I'm going to read some of your bio. I'm picking out some points. It's a fascinating bio. Gina is fascinating. And you're going to find out why. Obviously, we're talking purpose here. And we're going to figure out where this purpose came from. But just this is going to tell you where it ended up or where we are now, right? So Gina, Gina Sierfogel is Associate Professor in the Department of Environmental and Geographical Science. That's UCT, am I right? Mm-hmm. Great. Her research focuses on climate change adaptation and development at the household and city level. If ever this you know, is a relevant bio, it would be this one. She's particularly interested in transdisciplinary projects that bring together civil society, government and academics to address problems collaboratively. Recently, she has served on the, Cape, uh, the City of Cape Town's Water Resilience Advisory Section 80 Committee. I'm going to stop there for two seconds. For the people who are somewhere else, where are you right now? Right, so I'm in my um, house in Rosebank in Cape Town, not the Joburg Rosebank. And so that's just below Table Mountain, below UCT, um, on the slopes of Table Mountain in Cape Town. And would you like to tell them what your view looks like, Gina? Well, currently I'm actually looking out over the house on the other side of the road. But if I look to my right, then I see a beautiful view of Devil's Peak. (sighs) Amazing. So I'm just jealous right now. And please tell us very, very quickly why this water advisory Um, Section 80 committee was so important and tell us a little bit about Cape Town's situation with water. Great. So 
In 2016, the dam levels in Cape Town started dropping and most of our water in Cape Town comes from dams, so this was a concern. And then things got really serious in 2017, 2018. So the city came together and created this Water Resilience Advisory Committee. And what's good about it is the city had been making a lot of decisions themselves, but really wanted to bring in some external people to advise, to share their uh, proposed plans with. So I was on that committee, which was really a privilege to be on that committee to understand what was happening. But things were bad. And we talked about the potential of day zero when the city's taps would be shut off. And we avoided that, but there was a lot of hard work that went into avoiding it. So we had a few rough years of droughts. And as somebody who works in the climate change field, this is a big concern to me because those droughts are possibly going to become more frequent in the future. So I was on holiday in Cape Town um, December uh, during that time. And it was hard, uh, something I'm not used to. I'm in, you know, I live in Johannesburg. And having my two little girls there, that was the good part, though, is that they were able to learn firsthand about the value of water and what it feels like not to have it and all these restrictions. And then what was interesting is going back home again, immediately you, you fill a sink up with water and you're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And the kids were actually quite hard on me and reminding me. So I think it really is a case of those are the people that we really need to be teaching. And I think so many people say, um, from a purpose point of view, how can I make an impact on the world? I want to you know, save the whales or save the rhino or save water, whatever it is. And my answer normally is, if you can just influence the little people in your house to teach them to save water, look out for that little kid who's in the corner of the playground and feeling lonely, um, plant vegetables, uh, you recycle, you're making an impact. Um, so it was, it was phenomenal. And I think for me, that point you bring up is really important because it really changed Cape Townians' relationship with water. So as somebody who works in climate change, I'm constantly wanting people to understand why they need to adapt to a changing climate. And if you live in the city, it's kind of easy not to because you used to turn on a tap and there'd be water. Whereas during the drought, really, you got the sense that that wasn't the case. And so we all started putting buckets in the shower, using less water, and our relationship with water changed. So there was a part of me that was kind of hoping we'd have day zero just for a week where we actually didn't have water. And I am very interested in inequality issues as well. And there are a large number of people in our city who have lived without tapped water for decades. And so they've essentially been living with day zero. And for us as privileged people to have the experience of, oh, I've got to go and queue for water, fetch water, we then understand what it means not to have water access, which um, people didn't have to really consider before for some people. Um, that's a very good point. And I think also part of that is, and I've seen it myself, even from my own cancer prognosis, I went into remission and immediately you think, oh, wow, you celebrate life and you look at everything, you know, roast into glasses, everything's great. And it doesn't take long before you start to like go back into some of those bad habits or those the bad lifestyle choices as if you don't have to celebrate life. So I can only imagine for a lot of people in Cape Town, it was also going back to, well, we've got water again now. And I, I think the dams are pretty full right now. They had just reached 100%, which is really exciting. But I think for me, there were some great shifts where people have shifted permanently. So we, for example, now have rainwater tanks and those aren't going away. So now we water our garden from our rainwater tanks instead of from the water that is in the dam. So there have been shifts like that. And just a, I think there is a better appreciation for water and the sense of I mustn't waste it, even though it's now available. So definitely not drought levels, but a new kind of experience, which is good. Fantastic. You've made it this far, probably because the topic resonated with you. 
If you're wondering what the show is all about, listen to the trailer at the start of the season and find out how this show is going to help you along your own path to purpose. You've stumbled on a project that is all about purpose. Find out why the guests are all so vastly different, but yet all have so much in common. Hop on board this journey with me, follow the Enrichment Project so that you don't miss out on a single episode and share it with, well, everyone. We are all looking for more meaning in our lives. If the show speaks to your identity or the identity of your brand, consider sponsoring a season. Let's make the circle bigger. Back to the episode and thanks for listening. So I haven't finished yet. Give me two seconds and I'm going to find my place here. Um, so I love that, by the way. Um, she is lead author in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Sixth Assessment Report. In 2015, she won the South African Young Woman in Science Award, and she's my cousin. Um, she has authored numerous papers, book chapters, and popular articles. Cape Town, you live there with your husband, your two kids, and you love owls, chameleons, and ice cream. <laughs> I should cool. <laughs> Um, okay, cool. So Gina, take us back. So I'd like us to, to traverse this journey of where things began and how you started studying, what you were thinking of ultimately becoming, in fact, before we even go there, your earliest memory of what you wanted to become when you were a grown up. What was that? So I think what's interesting for me is I grew up with a father who's a doctor and a mother who's an occupational therapist. And I was always interested in sort of psychology and my dad's a psychiatrist. And I thought when I grow up, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a psychiatrist. And then during high school, I had some kind of really honest conversations with my parents who were very useful in kind of thinking through, well, what does that really mean? Um, and not trying to put me off, just trying to, you know, be realists. So that was helpful. And then I also, for my school project where you get to go and be in an organization or do what you want to do. I thought HR would be good, human resources. So I went and spent some time in HR and I kind of struggled and thought maybe I don't want to be a doctor. And my dad was like, if you want to be a psychiatrist, that's great. You have to study medicine though. So you really need to be passionate about medicine. And I wasn't really. So we talked a lot and I just have always loved the environment and outdoors. And I was like, well, that's what I really am interested in. And so they supported me and I decided to do a Bachelor of Science in um, Environmental and Geographical Science. So kind of went into that field, not quite knowing what it would mean, but knowing that that's where my passion and interest was. So it was a good start, but not a kind of this is what I'll be when I grow up, kind of different to that. Yeah, but it was broad enough that you knew you could narrow that down in the future. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think that's quite important. I think that's quite important as well. I think with the trajectory of purpose, um, I think a lot of times people don't get to that feeling of I'm doing something that is my purpose because we, we see purpose the wrong way mm. is my belief. Mm. If, if we reframe it into it doesn't have to be this massive thing. It just has to be what makes me feel like I have meaning in my life, things that bring me joy, things that make me feel happy. What is that stuff? And that's what you're saying. I've always had a, a love of the outdoors and wow. Okay. So what, where can I go with that? But broad enough so I can discover something down the line, which is exactly what happened. Am I right? Yeah. And I think for me, there's always been this tension with purpose that for many sounds like quite a goal-focused thing, which is what you're saying. Whereas for me, purpose has always been living into what I love and then the goals kind of emerge. So I have kind of sometimes sort of berate myself, oh, but I should have been doing, and I don't have these goals of I want to be this or want to do that, but I do what I love. And then these amazing things come to me. So 
I can also see that it's so important to kind of have it that way around because I feel like we haven't been taught that way around. We've been kind of taught you must have a goal and reach for that goal. But actually, if you're doing what you love, those things emerge. That's such a valid perspective and an incredibly powerful thing you've just said. Uh, I dig that a lot. So I was one of those very different experience to yours. And I mean, your parents were, um, and I'm not about to make a dig at my parents, don't worry, but your parents were perfectly positioned to help you with some of those big decisions. That's amazing. So yeah. for me, I got the award in, in standard six and standard seven. So that's grade eight and grade nine for arts and industrial arts. So a top prize, right? And then when we got to decide subjects, what do you think I took? Math, science, biology, geography. Why? Because my mom's a geography teacher and it's kind of sun. You know, art is something you do. It's a passion. It's, it's, you know, it's a hobby. You're not going to earn money. We need to kind of take the subjects that are going to set you up for success in life. You can become a, an attorney or a doctor or a blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I did. I went into law and then and nothing's ever wasted, but none of it was. This is what I truly love. Um, and if I think of where mm. I've ended up now and how you know, the, the whole story has evolved, um, I almost look at someone like you and, and, and no, nothing is ever wasted. And I think part of the purpose is picking up the pieces of everything and, and figuring out what did I love about this thing, this thing, this thing, this thing, or what can I do with that? Mm. Um, but I look at someone like you and look at your journey. I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. I think you discovered it quite early, right? Yeah. And it's quite interesting because, I mean, I did art for my trick and so, you know, I was the top student, kind of often was first in my class, but I loved art. And so my parents supported that, which I really like. I also played guitar my whole high school career. I was really useless. I hated performing in front of people. I like, I couldn't remember. And now my son just plays these piano pieces without music. I'm like, I never did that. But kind of doing things you enjoy is so important. And it makes me think of my kids and go, oh, I need to remember that and support them in the things they enjoy, not what I think they need to do. Because exactly right. yeah, I can see myself jumping onto that thing already. And, and it is. That's what we do mm. as parents. So my eldest, McKinnon, now she's having to make, in fact, about two weeks ago, I had to sign off the form. And the discussion was, no, 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 no. I, I'm not even getting involved in this. You tell me what you, you enjoy and the ones you're good at. I don't want you to take something that you don't enjoy and aren't good at. And I couldn't care. And I think the other cool thing, this I've learned in terms of, uh, of I don't have a degree. I don't have formal education beyond matric, really. But everything is available now. So even matric, if, you know, the year after mm. matric, if you don't have a subject, you can go and do it. And I think it's 2,500 rand for a subject for the year. So you don't have to have it now. You don't have to have it all figured out. That's important. Yeah. And that kind of enjoying where we are at the time rather than doing stuff for a purpose and not enjoying it because we think it's going to get us somewhere and we don't know the future. So, yeah. Okay. So you did, a, a, I'm not going to say a basic degree is anything but a basic degree, but, but what came next? Sure. So I did a Bachelor of Science in um, Environmental and um, Geographical Science and Oceanography. And then I um, was on the Geography Committee and I was organizing an event when I was in third year for the students to see what options there were um, sort of post-degree. And I got in a speaker who had done his honors degree at Rhodes University and was doing the master's at UCT. And he was talking about this honors in environmental water management. And I thought, wow, that sounds interesting. Mm. And so I had planned to do my honors at UCT, but I thought, no, actually, let me go somewhere else. And that was one of the best decisions because I kind of got used to UCT, what was there and going somewhere else, being, a, I grew up in Cape Town. And so it was, you know, um, in my home city for my undergrad degree and being forced to go somewhere where I didn't know anybody rocked up. It was quite a learning experience, but was amazing. 
But what was interesting is I landed up doing my thesis in in-stream flow requirements and modeling of water, and I didn't really enjoy that. I kind of started and went, hmm, I'm interested in water, but I don't really want to do this modeling stuff. But we had been on quite a few field trips to the Cat River Valley, and we're looking at um, a village that had quite high levels of erosion. And one of the challenges was that the kids in that village battled to get to school when the river was in flood because the bridge was flooded. Mm. And so we were looking at it from a geography science perspective to try and understand the erosion and what was happening and how they might address erosion for social purposes. And so after my honors, I thought, actually, when I carry on studying, if I carry on studying, I'm very interested in this science for society area. So I like science and I'm interested in science and love it, but I want to focus on what it means for people um, and their lives. It's almost applying it. So you've learned this stuff. How do I apply this to? That's, yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. Okay. And then? And then. Um, so when I was at Rhodes University, there was a visiting professor from the University of Oxford. And I chatted to him and I said, how do people go to Oxford? How would you do a master's there? And he kind of looked at me and went, well, you know, you have to get very good marks, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, okay, fine. Anyway, put that on hold. And then I did a year of work and travel. So I went to the UK and I worked hard and I traveled and that was amazing. But then I decided I want to get out of London because all my friends were in London. So it was a very South African experience. And I thought, oh, wow. I, I've had enough. I'm trying to kind of expand and explore. And a friend of mine had been in Oxford and she'd been helping a woman to look after her son when she was across at another university. So Yachika had just been sort of in the house. And so when the mother was away for a few nights, Yachika was there looking after the son. So she was looking for somebody. So I said, great. So I went up to Oxford and um, I met the mother and that all worked out fine. But I said, I'm not going to stay at home while um, your son's at school. I need to work. I need to do something. And so she had a contact in the Environmental Change Institute. So she said, go and speak to them and see if they need somebody there. So I rocked up and I said, hi, do you have any work? And they said, no. So I said, okay, fine. Let's go into town and look at the temping agencies and see if they've got some work for me. And as I was walking down the street, I passed a little road called Mansfield. And I carried on walking. Then I took two steps back and I thought, oh, Mansfield, maybe I'd rather go down there. And my father's always been one for taking the alternative route. So I think I got that from him. And as I walked down Mansfield Road, I passed the School of Geography. And I thought, I've got a degree in that. Let's oh, wow. go in and see if they've got any work. <laughs> and I went in and it, yeah, exactly. And at Oxford, they've got these very gruff porters at the entrance and they decide who comes and goes. And so he said, well, do you have an appointment? So I said, no, but I'm looking for work. And he said, okay, let me phone the research administrator. And he phoned up and he said, there's somebody here looking for work. And she said, does she have a work visa? So I said, yes. So she said, great, let me meet her. And wow. down come, came this wonderful old woman, Pat. And she said, hi, we actually need somebody in the general office. So I said, great, I'm ready to start. Yeah. And so the next week I started in the general office and there was that professor that I'd met at Rhodes, came down to morning no tea and I was like, hi, we had that chat, remember, here I am. And so I just started as a research assistant. And then I got a bit down and the woman I stayed with wasn't that friendly and I wasn't loving my time. And I thought, oh, I don't know if I can stay here. I think I just need to come back to South Africa and I've had enough of this. Mm. Anyway, there was a job advert that came up that said um, they needed a research assistant in the geography department where I was. And so I kind of knew about it and I thought, okay, great. Let me do my homework. What do they need in this department? 
And honestly, I think that was the most nervous I've been any time in my life is going into this interview. So luckily I'd written out a kind of flow chart on what I thought they needed. So I held on to this piece of paper because I was like, if I get this job, I can stay and this is one trajectory. Yeah. If I don't get this job, I'm going back to South Africa and thought I'd do my master's in conservation biology or something. Okay. Anyway, I was the last person and I got the job. So I was like, wow. wow. So I became the research assistant for the School of Geography. So that would have been in 1998. And part of my job was to help them with web pages, which were fairly new at this time. And as I was doing the web pages, I saw that as part of the um, School of Geography, um, they had the Environmental Change Institute. So mm. I was helping to do the web pages and saw that they had a PhD scholarship advertised. And I thought, I don't have a master's. Ooh, you know, I didn't exactly get 80s for my honors. Mm, anyway, this looks really interesting. Why? Because it was looking at how seasonal climate forecasts could be applied in Southern Africa. And I was like, oh my gosh, That's this my is my thing. dream. Science <laughs> my in Southern Africa, where I'm from, yeah. four people, wow. Oh. So I spent what I call the best two weeks of my life doing my homework research, speaking to people, putting together this application to say, I want to do this PhD. And they awarded it to me. So wow. it was an amazing story of how I got to do my PhD at Oxford, which I loved. It was really hard work. It was amazing. There were yeah, just so many fantastic well, things about it. What an incredible it. thing to have in your CV as well. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it was this great combination of where during the winters in England, I got to come home to Southern Africa, explore um, South Africa. I was initially actually going to do my PhD fieldwork in Zimbabwe, went up there, did some exploration stuff and realized that things were sort of shifting. And it would be quite hard to look at my research topic around climate information because there were so many political issues mm -hmm. emerging. So I then took a trip around. I bought this little Nissan 1400 Bucky and traveled the country and was going to actually work up in northern South Africa. But then I stopped in Free State and met this amazing woman who said, well, actually speak to some people in Lesotho. So I didn't have my passport. So I met the woman in Ladybrand. We had this coffee and she worked at this NGO care. And she said, well, come, come to Lesotho. It's a great place to work. So I thought, why not? So I carried on to Joburg, probably had tea with you at some point, yep. and then went back to Lesotho and landed up doing my thesis work in Lesotho. Wow. It, it just... I, I actually get goosebumps because there's so much in here that's just so powerful. I think number one, putting it out there, having this idea of, of where you really want to go and then putting yourself in the places and being open and just taking chances and putting yourself forward for things that, and I think a lot of times we don't, and, and that's our stuff. And, and fear is, is horrific. Fear stops us from doing so much. It could have been the fear of rejection, the fear of, I can't ask for a job. I mean, who are these people? I'm, I haven't prepared anything. I'm not, just, hey, I want a job. Um, just rocking up. That, that is, it's remarkable. It really, really is remarkable. And hats off to you. No, seriously, hats off to you. That's, it's quite Thanks. something. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an amazing combination of kind of luck and being in the right time. But I mean, I guess I like sort of exploring and new things, yeah. which then exposes you to a whole lot of opportunities. Um, and backing yeah. yourself. I think that's that's the amazing thing. So for me as well, I, I, people say to me, wow, oh, you've, you've been really lucky. And I've been very fortunate, And but you create your own luck. Mm. And you create your own luck because you're open to opportunities. You're prepared to back yourself. You, 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 you just throw yourself in and know that you're adaptable and know that somehow you will just you'll figure it out. And that's been, that's always been my thing. Um, and it's got me into some of the most incredible places and spaces. Um, so quite nice to see that in another human being. So Gina, and then? Yeah, so then I did my PhD in Lesotho, which I really liked. And then after I finished my PhD, I really wanted to come home to South Africa. I mean, I'm very passionate about Southern Africa and being 
in the space. So my funding ran out, so I had to finish my PhD. I kind of took a few extra months, but with no kind of money, I needed to finish up. But I started working for the Stockholm Environment Institute because my supervisor from my PhD left the university and started an SEI branch in Oxford. So that was great. So I'd work for him two days a week to get some money, but also started to be exposed to that kind of work. And um, the SEI is a wonderful sort of environmental think tank. And so I engaged quite a lot with their uh, Sweden office, but then came back to South Africa after I finished my PhD and ran projects for SEI and worked for SEI for a few years back here in Cape Town. I then did some other work through UCT, through the Climate Systems Analysis Group, and just loved that kind of work where I was traveling to various Southern African countries. We did some stuff in um, Malawi, in um, some other countries, Namibia, and also had quite a lot of sort of international trips and yeah, I loved that work wow. because it was quite applied. So again, it was using my understanding of science for society. And one of my amazing um, mentors was a lecturer at UCT. And she said to me, well, there's this lecturer job coming up. And I was like, no, I don't really want to be a lecturer. So I'd always kind of... Be stuck in there. <laughs> when I was doing my sort of PhD, I thought, I want to work for an NGO. I loved working with Ken Lesotho. They were working with people on the ground. But I also saw the challenges there. And I saw how challenging it was. At the end of my PhD, I was part of a... Um, environmental program where the World Bank was quite involved. And I thought, oh, maybe I want to work at the World Bank. And one of them gave me quite good advice. And he said, you know what? You only want to come to the World Bank when you're more senior, because then you can make decisions. When you're junior, yeah. you kind of have to do what you're told. And I was like, well, that's also useful. And what was interesting, the most time I spent in South Africa in the academic environment, yeah. I realized that I actually loved it because it wasn't this theory thing about just kind of being an academic and drawing on theory. In South Africa, I came back and it was so applied. You know, I was asked to be on various committees, advisory groups, et cetera, because there's a smaller group of scientists, but you actually have input into various processes. And I love that. So wow. she said, why don't you apply to be a lecturer? And I thought, yeah, that sounds great. And I applied and I didn't get the job. And then another one came up and I applied again and I got that one. And I started lecturing and I actually love the students. I love engaging with them. And the work I do, as you read in my bio, I like transdisciplinary work, which for me means working with academics from different disciplines. So within the university, working with other academics and then working with people outside of the university. So local government, uh, civil society. And for me, that space is where I'm really excited and we'll talk a bit more about it. But I started to realize that as a South African academic, I'm actually valued for that kind of work. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to stay in academia. And so here I am. Um, I guess I started my lecturing job in 2009. Wow. So, yeah, and I'm not planning to move. Yeah, exactly. And I love it. Okay. And so it's quite weird as you're talking. And just, just I can't let go of that whole HR. I thought maybe I could go into HR. And if you think of what HR really is, it's the people. It's handing the people within this thing, which is pretty much what you do in the project that you do, right? And it's applying the science to people so it's just quite interesting but there's definitely a people thing going i mean everything that you you get excited when you talk about engaging with people so i can just imagine what you must be like you know as a lecturer and engaging with students and and helping them to apply stuff um i, I really can imagine that yeah and so one of my passions is connecting so okay. i want to connect people whether it's connect people to ideas or connect them to other people or to 
kind of research that's there and how do we bring the stuff together to do it? And so it's bringing those parts together, sometimes people, sometimes information. You're a solutionist, actually. That's where I see it. And that really is what you do, right? It's looking for solutions to problems. Here are the problems and here are the people. And, how, how do... and process. Yeah. yeah. So solutions through processes as opposed to the outcome and uh, the endpoint. Okay. All right. Um, and now, or did we miss a step? Yeah, I guess. So for me, maybe a bit about my research career in the sense that um, for my PhD, I was working with small scale farmers and looking at seasonal climate information and how that information might be used to plan your agricultural decisions, essentially. And it was interesting in Lesotho because many of the farmers weren't very familiar with that information and they started to think about how they might use it. So I loved that work and I worked with Lesotho Met Service and with the farmers. And in my first year of field work, I said to them, well, how would you use this? And they would kind of go, oh, I'm not sure. And I had this interview structure that didn't really work. The next year I went back and I was like, what's a different way I could do this? And I did role play exercises where we kind of said, well, if you had this information and you had a friend, how might you suggest okay. you use it? And it really kind of gave me some insight. Sometimes when we have to say what we'll commit to, we don't want to commit. But if we say, oh, what would you suggest for a friend? Suddenly it different. kind of opens up and we're like, oh, maybe they should do that. Or So that was a lovely experience. And then I worked quite a lot in South Africa in um, Pumalanga and Northern Province and was looking at seasonal climate forecasts and farmers and then started working in sort of villages and then sort of shifted to municipalities. And part of my rationale was I want to understand people on the ground and what where they're coming from and then um, engage with the sort of okay. local government. And in the last 10 years, I've actually moved to a city focus. So now my research is primarily in the urban areas, um, but around climate change issues mm. still. So then I can talk a bit about the drought because that was kind of an yes. exciting moment yeah, for me as no. well. And everything leads to that, actually. Amazing how things culminate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was great because I got some money from the AXA Research Fund to work on kind of urban issues of climate change, adaptation and governance. So I started becoming quite interested in governance and how environmental issues are governed. So what does the local government try to do to exert influence over events? Who do they bring in? How do local NGOs try to respond and govern certain issues? And I worked uh, on a flooding project, which was really interesting in the city of Cape oh. Town. And then I got this money from AXA and it was to look at issues around water and governance, but also social justice. So I'm quite interested in issues of inequality and how do we address that in South Africa where it's really hard when you say we've got to adapt to climate change because in Cape Town, for example, you've got people living with hardly any water walking to a standpipe and then you've got people who turn on their taps, have a big garden, have a pool, very different. So how do we work with that? And so that was what my proposal was around. So I had this you know, she had just recently shifted to look at that. And then the drought started kind of unfolding. And I was like, okay, I need to pause. This is a moment yeah. I can't let pass by. I've been working on these big issues. Let me just start talking to some people in the city of Cape Town about what's happening. I was invited to be on this water resilience advisory committee. So it was great timing. But then I also got asked to do some work for National Treasury um, for the city support program, looking at the drought and lessons learned. So it was just wow. an amazing opportunity for me to pull together these lessons learned, to do a whole lot more interviews. And the idea there was to share the lessons with other municipalities in South Africa. So that was quite a highlight for me. And after I'd done that, I thought, that's great. But as a citizen myself, 
even with all my networks, sometimes wasn't quite sure what was happening. And through these interviews, I've learned and I've understood what was happening. I really want to share that with other people in the city of Cape Town. And I thought, how could I do that? Because as an academic, to be honest, the academic writing is not very enticing for everyone. (laughs) Your book, Richard, is enticing. (laughs) It draws us in. It's a great story. Everybody must read it. But I don't think everybody should read it. It's the human element. Exactly. It's the human element. It's the stories, your perspective. Okay. So what have you done with that? So I thought, exactly. So I thought I need to work with a journalist. I need to put together a book that is accessible. And so it was very good timing. I happened to meet somebody. I was passionate about this work I'd done and it has to be known more broadly. And um, he happened to have access to some funding and said, well, why don't you put in a proposal? And I put in this proposal and I wrote a book with Leonie Jaber, who I've worked with over the last sort of 10, 15 years. Um, And so it's called Day Zero, One City's Response to a Record-Breaking Drought. So please have a look at it, www.dayzero.org.za. And it was wonderful to work with her. Please repeat that again for us, please. Sure. www.dayzero.org.za. Perfect. And the title of the book again? Day Zero, One City's Response to a Record-Breaking Drought. Fantastic. Thank you. And where can people find it? So it's online. So we made these beautiful hard copies that we um, sent around and we also created an online version of the book. It's also for sale at the Book Lounge in Cape Town, but it was sort of a self-published. It wasn't through a publisher and it was very much me wanting to get this out there. And there was some geography teachers in Cape Town who were excited and picked it up. But it was also a very interesting experience working with Leonie because journalists work in a very different way to academics. As an academic, I've got to back up everything I say with evidence. As a journalist, you can make some big statements that you kind of have a sense. And so we had a fun process working together, but we worked together well. And I think it captures the stories and it's shortened to the point. And we got some great photos as well. So it's a really nice little book. And that was really a highlight for me, trying to do academic work that I could make accessible. Fantastic. Okay. And anything that we've missed out between that and your next exciting chapter? So I'm kind of in the middle of my next exciting chapter. I was asked by the city of Cape Town a few months ago to do some work looking at their COVID response and the drought response in order to understand disaster management in the city better. And so disaster management is a really important function. But when you have these big citywide crises, what we're seeing is cities aren't really well set up to deal with those crises because they're used to dealing with hazards. And so now suddenly you have COVID and you had the lessons from the drought where the whole city came together. And what I love about this work is that, you know, it used to be all drought, the water department will manage or COVID, the health department Uh, would manage. And we've seen that that's not how it works. So we're going into this complex future where everything is so interrelated. And, you know, our education system doesn't actually set us up that well for that because we kind of do very specific training and so i'm loving this field where yeah siloed and government departments are siloed Mm. and how do we teach our children to think more holistically and in an integrated way and how do we do work in cities that are set up for a siloed approach and we've got to moving forward with these challenges that are only going to get bigger and if we want to so part of my passion is also around how do we hear different voices and so in the drought you know, the city of Cape Town learned that they didn't have strong enough partnerships with some 
business organization, with many business organizations or civil societies. And we've got to build those. So part of my one of my other current projects is working with a social movement, an activist group, building their wow. stories and capturing their stories on the ground from people who are living in informal settlements, who are living in low-cost housing. They are facing such challenges and it's quite hard for them to engage with the city. And yes, the city is trying really hard. I've seen that. I've seen the other side and I can you know, see some of the challenges, but I can also see the frustration. So yeah. sharing these conversations and having these conversations really is part of the shift we need going forward. That excites me. Yeah, I was just about to say, what, what, I, what, what I dig most, Gina, is how excited you get about your subject and about your passions and about this thing that is, you know, it gets your juices flowing and dig it. It's really, really cool. And it's, it's why you are where you are and how you've, all these things have got you know, to this point is following that. Okay, so, and what else is next? So, I got some very exciting news on Friday when I was in the middle of uh, communicating with you that I applied for a program called Homeward Bound, which is about um, women in science with a focus on climate change globally. Um, and so, I just got selected for that. So, that's really wow. exciting. Um, so, it's a leadership program. And then the idea is that it culminates in a three-week voyage to Antarctica, which is wow. an absolute dream of mine. I've always wanted to go. Sure. And in fact, when I was a student, I tried to get on one of the boats, almost got in, but my research wasn't aligned with the boat work. So, somebody yeah. else got in. So, this is kind of like another highlight. <laughs> wow. I mean, there's so much going on there right now and, and so much... I think there's a lot of contention around different viewpoints. And I think that's something I wanted to just mention earlier as well with, with the city and the government and everything is that so much of it is political uh, and there's mm. so much of a, a, you know, the agendas everywhere. Uh, and I think a lot of what you do gets lost in the, well, it's just not our priority and, 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 you know, we're struggling with other bigger things that, that are going to put us ahead and keep us in a seat of power or whatever that is. That must be, that must be a struggle. It is a struggle, but I also, I mean, I've built relationships over the years. So one of the things that I guess, you know, my personality suits this work is, and with the drought work, I really saw it because the city of Cape Town was very cautious because there was so much politics at play. So even having somebody come to do interviews, doing a report, you know, they were worried, mm. but I guess the way I work, I kind of feel I'm being true to my academic um, intentions, but I engaged a lot with them and I built trust and I wrote a report where they could comment, but I wasn't going to take everything out that I put there. And they saw that and they saw the value of having an independent person do it. And so it is hard. And particularly when I work with people in kind of low income communities and I mean, really, they deserve to have better, have better living conditions. And you see some political process kind of just intervene and whatever was planned can't go ahead as planned. It's yeah. really sad. And it's part of the challenge in this country. Um, yeah. But they also, I guess what excites me is that there's so many wonderful stories. And when you start working in this field, you see these experiments, these innovations, these incredible NGOs, organizations, individuals doing amazing stuff. Um, and one of the groups that I've worked with has got a project called the Seeds of the Good Anthropocene, which means um, wow. the Anthropocene that we're living in is this kind of, era where humans are exerting a lot of influence on what happens globally. So as yeah. opposed to sort of previous geological eras, and actually there are seeds of a good Anthropocene of what it means to have humans be, have so much influence, yet there's a lot of exciting stuff emerging and COVID 
has had a lot of challenges, but we've also seen so many exciting responses, neighborhood responses, international responses, collaborations between groups who haven't worked together. Science has taken a huge role, and these are some of the things we've got to take away with us. Fantastic. I think part of what you've got going for you is your, your own human element. That's the HR in Gina. You're an accessible human being. You're an engaging human being. I think that you're very good at getting the best out of other people. And I think for what you do, that's, that's a massive benefit. So hats off to you for that. But I'd also say that if I can just comment on that, because yes. I think that's something I've worked a lot at. That's bridging the gap between the, the science and the academia. No, more on a kind of parallel line. So I've always been interested in my own personal growth. I've always been interested in doing things to kind of stretch myself, grow and learn. I guess I think about the range of things. I used to do stuff with Lifeline, and so I'd facilitate their personal growth course, love doing the personal growth course, love being a counselor on the phones. And so that other side of me that, you know, was interested in psychology, et cetera, I'm not going to go there, but okay. I've kind of done that. I've done Vipassana where I do 10, you know, 10 days of meditation. I'm now part of a weekly meditation group. And I think at one stage, I kind of oh. felt, oh, I must bring the two of them together. I'm so passionate about sort of personal growth that I must integrate that in the work that I do because I really see space for that. I think the kind of work in the sort of environmental systems field needs people to reflect on themselves. We need to understand multiple perspectives. And to do that, we need to grow as individuals because some of those perspectives aren't our own. Some of them are difficult to hear, particularly in the sort of transformation work where there are high levels of inequality. It's difficult stuff. We've got a troubled history. And so yeah. we need to confront that. And so part of me felt, oh, I must bring it together. And then last year at one point I went, actually, I don't have to bring it together explicitly. The more work I can do on myself and the more I can look after myself, well, the more I can do the work that I want to do. So that's been a kind of really important kind of lesson for me to follow some of these personal issues so that I can do this other work that I love so much. I have had to spend a lot of energy on in the last four years, my own cancer journey. I've had to face everything that I've become or tried to become because that's what the world demands us to become. Who did you have to become for your parents to say, oh, good girl, well done, Gina. And what did you do when they said you're a bad girl, go to your room, we don't even want to see you. You know, uh, That is all the conditioning. And then you know, what did you have to become to get to where you are right now? And then when somebody tells you that your time on this planet has got a finite end date, all of a sudden you don't have to be anything for anybody. But then there's mm -hmm. a real personality crisis and identity crisis. And who the hell am I? You know, so I, maybe I was lucky that a lot of that was forced, although I'm, I'm pretty similar like you in terms of always trying to delve into becoming better. But that, mm. that really is remarkable. And um, uh, I think it's that old Oprah Winfrey, be the change you want to see in the world. If, if, if I'm going to want to change things and be able to interact and get the best out of other people, well, I need to change first. So hats off to you. But then there's another matter of a. But I love uh, it. <laughs> well, that's obvious. Um, and again, it's, it's again, it's who you are, and it's also understanding yeah. how to do your thing better. And you're always wanting to do your thing better. That's the purpose. It's the thing, the thing that, that excites you. But there's a matter of a tiny little scholarship. Tell us about that. Oh yes, <laughs> very exciting. Yes, I mean, I, I'm trying to lead towards that, and then you're telling me about something else. I'm like, Gina, when's it going to the Fulbright thing yes. coming? So I have been awarded a Fulbright, which is really exciting. So the Fulbright program runs out of America, and 
Um, every year there are scholarships both for students and then for academic staff like myself. And I think South Africa awards about eight um, a year. And so they can be in any field. So I applied for that. And I heard during lockdown that I got awarded it. So it really is a dream because Fulbright supports the family going. They don't pay for the tickets. So we've got to pay for their own tickets. But it means that my husband and kids and I are off to America for six months next year. So, but it also was so interesting because I heard in May, in the middle of lockdown, and it was the sense of, well, what does this mean? I think everything's also shifted. So I kind of couldn't get happy about it. It's like, well, who knows if we can go, if we can't go. I tried to delay it because, you know, we were like, well, if we go and our kids are at home here in South Africa, they're back at school, but actually the American schools are still doing homeschooling. That doesn't really make sense. Are the faculty going to be around? And so I really tried to push it out to the second half of next year. And Fulbright said, nope, either use it or lose it. So we thought, well, okay. let's go and have an adventure. But the first few weeks, even after deciding we were going, I battled to get excited because I kind of feel COVID's been like a big teacher, but also has taken away some of the joy. So it's like, well, you hoped you were going to see your family or, you know, my kids, seeing both of my kids whose birthdays are in April, they couldn't have a birthday party. And in fact, my daughter, because that was the 26th of April, she couldn't have birthday presents because we went into lockdown thinking, oh, this will be a few weeks. But then I went to the chemist and I bought a few things for her to pick and pay. And she was absolutely fine. I couldn't even buy a, a birthday card. Yeah, exactly. It was that bad. But you can make yeah. a birthday card. Oh, for sure. Oh, you can make a birthday card. No, it has exactly been that. And everything's been exacerbated. And uh, the, pre the stress and the pressure on all of us has been, has been massive. Mm. So I, I do, I totally get that. And even now it must be a, what's going to happen with flights and, and spikes exactly. and a second um, wave and, but um, I, th I think you're going to approach it the same way you approach anything in life. And then just throw yourself in and see what happens on the other side. Yeah, and it will be an adventure. Yeah, for sure. And there'll be different things there. And what's interesting is both my husband and I, when I was six years old, and actually also when he was six years old, we both had time in another country with our families, both in England, in fact. And so for both of us, it's been sort of a dream to kind of have this time away with our kids yeah, for them to kids. experience something new, something different. Yeah. Um, so it really is very exciting. Well, congratulations. Um, really super amazing. Thank you. So in closing, two questions I want to ask you. And the one you've answered quite a lot of, but I'd, I'd just maybe focus on that just a little bit. Um, let's go with that one first. Some advice for people out there who might be a little far behind you in their own path to purpose, who might be struggling and floundering a little bit, maybe a little bit purposeless. What would your advice be? So I guess what's come through from my story and what I feel is how can you find the things that you love and do the things that you love? And I do feel I've been very privileged because the things I love have also brought me money. And I know that sometimes people have that tension. But for me, as you go into the things that you love and figuring out what you love, I think is one of the biggest challenges here. And so at one point, after I had my second child, I thought, do I really want to be an academic? I'm not sure that I'm a good academic. Do I want to change? And I worked with a coach for a few sessions, and it was invaluable because I kind of feel if I hadn't done that, I might have gone, maybe I should have changed. Oh, but working with somebody else helped me to figure out and go, actually, I do love this. Actually, I don't think there's anything else I want to be doing. I'm going to stay here and go into it. But those moments of uncertainty and confusion, I would also say are gifts to you. Because if you there can you use those well and use them to figure out, well, what is working, what isn't working, 
then you go forward with what is working. And if you don't use them, you suppress them, and then they're going to carry on coming back. That's it. So it's kind of that constant check to come back to really listen to yourself. And I know sometimes there are other pressures that makes it quite hard to hear what you really want to do. Mm. But finding that time and space, whether it's a friend to support you, whether it's an online course, whether it's, you know, kind of phoning the free lifeline counseling toll line that's there where people want to talk. Um, maybe it's journaling. Maybe it's an art form of exploring yourself, meditation, whatever, a walk in the forest. Um, so spending that time and really listening to yourself, I think, is important to figure that out. Thank you very much. Uh, and if you're listening and you're battling, that's extremely, extremely good advice. Thank you, Gina. Um, and then the last question. So if I had to project you into a time when you are no longer here, right, what would you most want to be celebrated for? What would that be? So I think for me, it really is being celebrated for the role I've played as what I guess I'd call an intermediary, working between academia and local government, working between academia and um, civil society organizations, but with a human lens. So I like to think that I'm not an arrogant academic. I know I don't know everything. I know I've got so much to learn. And part of the reason why I love these projects working with these different actors is because I learn so much. So I think it would be somebody who was willing to learn and shared with others in bringing together these different groups, particularly for the benefits of sort of social and environmental good. What an absolutely amazing thing to be able to say at this point in time. I can tell you from my perspective that uh, you're doing it already and I can only just imagine what, what's still to come. So kudos, um, phenomenal human being. Um, watch with absolute awe. And thank you so, so much for uh, your time today. And thank you for all your insights. They really have been valuable. Thank you, Richard. It's been amazing to talk to you. And yeah, I mean, as you know, I've loved learning more about your journey. And I think your book was such an honest, open part of you sharing that. So it's been a privilege for me to share my story with you as well. So thank you for asking me. Great. We'll catch you soon, hopefully. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for staying right to the end of the episode and for joining me on the Enrichment Project. Before you go, please share this episode with your friends and your colleagues. They will thank you, I'm sure. Remember that you can catch each Path to Purpose episode by watching on YouTube or if you prefer, on your favorite podcast app. The link to my book, The Power of Purpose, is in the show notes. Please go and check it out. It's a rad account of my own story of purpose and resilience and my fight against brain cancer. I finished six full Ironman events, a number of multi-stage mountain bike races, nine Ironman 70.3 races, including the Ironman World Championships and a bunch of other endurance events, all with stage four brain cancer because I wanted it that badly and getting to the finish line meant that much to me. As a professional inspirational speaker, business and life coach, author and storyteller, I'd love to add more value to you or your organization. Please find more details on my website, IamRichardWright.com and book me today for a live or virtual keynote, a masterclass, workshop or coaching session or please follow my journey on Facebook, I am Richard Wright, Twitter, The Right Rich, Instagram, 
I am Richard Wright or on LinkedIn. I'd love the opportunity to enrich your team. Thank you to the professional crew at Solid Gold Podcasts for the support, the talent and the mad skills. And to Anna Hick for her creativity and genius video magic. Thank you. You all rock. Oh,